Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, which can be found on page 1019 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to read the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Advent is the season of waiting, longing, expectation for the church. The church, unlike our culture, celebrates Advent because it helps us reckon with the fact that while we look forward to a hope to come, in the midst of December, things aren't always jolly. Things are not always merry and bright. And while the culture wants you to rush forward to be happy, be happy, be happy, the church slows us down and says, no, waiting for Jesus is hard. Waiting for Jesus can be painful. In the Old Testament, before the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Israel waited for hundreds and hundreds of years, banking on one promise found in Genesis 3.15, that from the seed of the woman, a son would come who would crush the head of the serpent. But it is not as if Genesis 4 
provides the redemption promised in Genesis 3.15. The people of God throughout the Old Testament long and groan for the true Son, the Messiah to be revealed, the true Son that will crush the head of the enemy and save his people. And likewise, even today, Paul writes in Romans, the earth is groaning for the true sons to be revealed. The Apostle Paul introduces us to the sober reality that many who have heard and claim to believe the gospel, people who claim the name of Christian, will be eternally judged under the wrath of God because they have believed in a grace defined on their own terms, rather than cast themselves on the grace that God truly offers in the gospel. In our passage this morning, we're presented with two kinds of people, two types And that's the outline. If you're taking notes, we got two, scoffers and saints. Scoffers and saints. So our first point, the scoffer. In verse 3 of Peter, uh, 2 Peter 3, Peter says that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. And if you're like me, I don't throw around the word scoffer a lot in my common vocabulary. A scoffer is someone who mocks jeers, makes light of something, empties something of its weight or meaning. Someone who sees or hears something that is significant, heavy, even glorious, and because they cannot stand in the silence that glory draws out of us, they make a mockery. Headlines become punchlines, and what God calls sacred and beautiful, they make common and crass. Peter says that scoffers will come with their scoffing, and we need to ask a few questions of these scoffers. First, why do scoffers scoff? There are two answers to that question in the text. One is implicit and one is explicit. The implicit answer is found in the way that the words are put in order. Look with me. Scoffers will come with their scoffing. Who you are determines what you do. Identity drives decisions and actions. Scoffing does not make you a scoffer anymore that sinning inherently makes you a sinner. Because we don't come into the world with a clean slate or morally neutral and then only become sinners after we commit one particular sin. We come into the world with a fallen nature. That is who we are and that is why we do what we do. Peter makes the same idea explicit when he says that when scoffers come, they will come following their own sinful desires. What we desire, what we crave, what we will is tied up intimately to who we are, and that is what drives what we do and how we live. If you were with us last week, we recited the Chalcedonian Creed. I won't quote the whole thing. But we profess together that Christ, in that statement, is both fully God and fully man. And the Creed says this, He was begotten before the ages from the Father according to his deity. But in the last days, for us and our salvation, the same one was born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to his humanity. Jesus, unlike us, has two natures, fully God and fully man, but man as he should have been. And having the two perfect natures, he wills what God wills and desires what God desires, which is why he can say, I came to do that which my Father has commanded. Jesus, though, was a man. In being fully man, he also has a personality. He was bold and gentle, loved being around people and being in solitude with the Father. 
He was humorous and witty at times, but also at other times sincere and comforting. Jesus had a real personality, and yet his personality, his nature, was never the cause for him to sin. So it ought not be in the church that we say, oh, that's just their personality. As if Jesus only took on part of a human nature and died for that and leaves the rest of us on the table to figure out on our own. He became fully man so he'd save 100% of who we are from our desires to our personalities to our actions. To say that scoffing, impatience, rudeness, unkind sarcasm, that's me, cynicism, being a truth teller, or having a short temper is just part of our personalities and that's how we will always be is a lie. If Jesus has not saved you from your fallen personality, he has not saved you from your sin. Because he offers to save no less than the full humanity he assumed in the incarnation. Scoffers scoff because that is who they are, following their sinful desires. The next question we need to ask is, what is it exactly that these scoffers are scoffing about? Look with me at verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For even since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Scoffers look at the world and get the sense that God's not really coming back to judge the living and the dead. And if God won't judge me, no one can. I can live however I want. The atheist scoffer denies that God exists, but the kind of scoffer who believes in a God says, does God really care about what I do and how I live? Does God care about my language and the way I talk? Does God care about the way I dress? Does God care about how I spend my money, what I watch, listen to, and read? Does God care about what goes on in our thought life? Does God care about drunkenness, pornography, or gluttony? When no one else is around, we all have a scoffer inside of us that whispers and says, did God really say? How is it that someone can go from hearing that little lie to believing it? Look with me at verses 5 and 6. This is the reason why people believe the lie. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. It's not that they, the scoffers, are ignorant or that they have forgotten, but that they deliberately overlook this one fact. And what is that one fact? They overlook one of the most popular stories from the Bible that just about any kid in this room or downstairs could recite to you. Noah, the ark, and the flood. And if one can deliberately overlook the oncoming judgment and wrath of God from his holiness in that story, is there any chance that we can approach the gospel and the cross week after week after week and forget why it exists, that a holy God is the reason for the cross. If you and I are comfortable claiming to be Christians, but we're going on months, years, even decades of living in unrepentant sin, our consciences unbothered, saying to yourself, it doesn't feel wrong, doesn't bother me, so can it really be wrong? 
Could it be that like the scoffers in the text, it's because you and I do not read God's word or only read the parts that we really, really like? Can we be honest for a moment? If you and I, and I, I put myself there, are not reading, studying, meditating on, and praying through the whole Bible, and we've neglected the word for decades, can we look at each other honestly and say that we know who God is? That we know his will, that we know what he asks of our lives. If we never encounter a God who is different from us, that demands something of us and calls on us to change, then the God we claim is not the God of the Bible. But let's not act that scoffers are just out there. Scoffers look at the oncoming judgment of God and says, he's not really coming, I can live however I want to, but how often do you and I pass by, I set after I set, cashiers, baristas, coworkers, friends, and we don't believe that God's coming back to judge because we refuse to share the gospel. 500 families live within walking distance of this building. How often do we go? 3.2 billion people have not heard the gospel and will not if someone doesn't go. Do we believe that God is coming if we refuse to go? And it says as much about them as it does about us. If we scoff at the judgment of God, it's because that is who we are. We need to repent. This passage is not for outsiders. They do this and we do this because we deliberately choose to let the Bible collect dust. So what is the end of the story for scoffers? Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away where the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. For those who continue in their scoffing, continue in their sin, their end, the end of their story is judgment under the wrath of a holy God. Do not overlook this fact. The king will return and he will destroy his enemies. Look at verses 8 and 9. The scoffers mock the timing of God, assuming that he isn't coming back. But what man calls slowness, God calls patience. What man looks at and says, I won't perish, God says, is meant to lead you to repentance. Maybe you came to church today to hear a message of comfort and joy and hope. But, oh, friend, if you will not repent, there is no hope for you. We can sing Christmas songs like, Come thou long expected Jesus, born a child and yet a king, and miss the fact that if Jesus is not your king, if he does not rule and reign in all of your life, then he does not come to your rescue, but for your judgment. Jesus says, the kingdom is at hand. Will you repent and believe the gospel? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, for he has come to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. We've met the scoffer. We've seen his need, and he needs Christ. And now we move with the apostle to the next character addressed in our passage, which is the saints. 
Look with me at the portion, verses 11 through 17. Verse 11 reads, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Repentance precedes the call to holiness. We've seen in the first portion of our passage that the lost are not called to do better like we confessed in our corporate confession, but they are called to repent. But for those who have repented, for those here who would claim Christ and are truly Christians, as we look in this Advent season to the return of Jesus, what kind of lives are we to live? How do we wait and long for our Savior this Advent season? Is the gospel merely about future salvation from hell? Or is there a present tense reality to what Jesus has offered us? Peter says that in light of the return of our Lord and the dissolving of the earth and the works that will be exposed, that we ought to be people of holiness and godliness. There are two dominant meanings to the word holiness in Scripture. The first meaning is that which belongs to God. R.C. Sproul wrote a short little book called The Holiness of God on this subject, and if you read anything in 2024, I would highly recommend you read that. Sproul says, when the Bible speaks about God's holiness, the primary thrust of those statements is to refer to God's transcendence, to his magnificence, to that sense in which God is higher and superior to anything there is in the creaturely realm. So in one sense, to live a life of holiness is to live in regard and acknowledgement of who God is. To live in the reality of his transcendence and magnificence, that he is superior to all else and all others. The second major use of the word holiness in the scriptures is that which refers to us believers. Personal righteousness, moral purity. So to live a life of holiness, taking the two senses together, is to live in such a way that God's majesty is central and that God's majesty and righteousness would shape us to be like him. Be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. The next word is godliness, and it's closely related to holiness. Tony Evans defines godliness in this way in a sermon. Godliness is a lifestyle that consistently reflects the character of God. So taken together, a life of holiness and godliness is reverential in a posture of worship and reflective of his character to the world. So what Peter is saying is, if you are a true Christian, not a scoffer, be someone who always lives in the majestic presence of God and then be a true reflection of that presence to the world. Let's just add that to our resolutions for 2024. Our tendency is to want to lower, lower the bar. It can't be that high of a call, but let's not lower the bar and make holiness and godliness to mean something other than what they really mean according to God's word. This is the call. Let's not overlook it, but try to understand how it is possible. I see three motivations for a life of holiness and godliness for the Christian. Three reasons to pursue this kind of life. And I believe that they are presented to us in order of ultimacy, the last one being the highest motivation. Notice that the first motivation for the saint is the exact same as the scoffer. Look again at verse 10. The scoffer is warned 
that all things will be dissolved and all works exposed. Therefore, they need to repent and be saved. And then in verse 11, Peter writes that based on the exact same reality, the fact that all the works done in the earth will be exposed, that Christians ought to live in a certain kind of way. Listen, the majority of warning passages in the Bible are directed to the people of God. So let's not hear a warning in the New Testament and say, that's not for us, church. In Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing a crowd of his followers who greatly admire his teaching. Like most of us would claim in this room, we follow Jesus, we admire his teaching. And Jesus says that many on that day of judgment will arrive at the throne banking on a form of belief and a form of good behavior and be turned away. So let's not overlook this fact, beloved, that many who have done a lot of good things, many who serve in ministry, many who are members of local churches will hear these words on the day of judgment, depart from me, for I never knew you. Let's not suppose that just because the Bible contains warnings of final judgments that they are not meant for Christians or are not part of the gospel or have nothing to do with grace. It is God's grace that puts these warnings in the scripture and it is his grace that saves us if we will heed them. The first motivation to live a life of holiness and godliness is that your life matters. How you live counts. Your life is not meaningless but God has designed you to have a purpose in this world living a holy life is not merely about doing what is right versus what is wrong or moral conformity or some type of legalism but about human dignity because if God is not real and he's not coming back and he's not going to judge then your life has no meaning or purpose but because he has come and will come again, and will reveal all that is hidden, and cares about all that we do, your life has beauty and significance. Your life matters because God says so. The second motivation to live a life of holiness and godliness is that your life is integrally involved in God's plan for redemption. We are called to be holy and godly. Now look at verse 12. As we are called to this life, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. This is the same day of the Lord that appears throughout the Old Testament. And is prominent throughout all scriptures. And this is hastened, Peter says. It is welcomed in. It is received by our lives of holiness and godliness. Throughout scripture... And you can go read the book of Romans if you really want to get into this. It is presented that the end time reality of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is something that has already begun in the resurrection of the Messiah. And that is the newness of life that we have been born into. So what we need to say is this, that the command to be holy and godly is not merely about being a good person or avoiding the really bad sins. God's not like Santa. It's not about good people doing good things and getting good gifts and bad people getting hellfire and brimstone. That is a reduction of the gospel. It's not merely about going to heaven when you die or escaping hell. That's not it. Our lives in the gospel have an active role in the welcoming in of the kingdom of God. The recreation of the heavens and the earth is intimately tied to the lives of the saints. 
So we don't resist temptation merely out of an obligation to be good, but to actively push against the gates of hell. Likewise, our good deeds accomplish far more than we might expect. A cup of water in the name of Jesus is part of a new flood of God's grace, not destroying the world, but recreating it. This is really good news because it means that God can take your five loaves and two fish, the little that you have, and feed a multitude. Don't discount the power of a small word of encouragement or a meal taken to a friend, or of two or three people gathering midweek to pray in this neighborhood, or the 15 minutes that is, feels like a stretch to you to read your Bible and pray. It's not about how much you have, but who you take it to that makes your life significant and meaningful. So whether you are called to sell all of your abundance, all of your riches to feed the poor, or all you have is two small copper coins, Jesus is faithful to take that, plant it in the ground, and reap a harvest when we sow seeds in faith. The third and supreme motivation is found in verse 13. Look with me there. It is according to his promise that we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So while we are participants in the new creation now, and we work really hard like the Apostle Paul says, we also know that the new heavens and the new earth are ultimately bound up in his promise. Likewise, while we pursue holiness and godliness, we know that perfect righteousness, experienced righteousness, will not be ours until that day. He has promised to make all things new beginning in our hearts, the renewing of our minds, sanctification in this life, a glorious resurrection to come, and glorification with him in eternity. And we bank on his promise. The first motivation to live a life of holiness and godliness is that how you live your life matters because God promises to judge. The second motivation is that our changed lives are part of a changed world. What we do matters, and God gives eternal, world-renewing significance to our lives. And third, and ultimately, the motivation for living a holy and godly life is his promise to accomplish that work in us. Praise God that he does not merely offer you future salvation from hell, but that fully united to your salvation from the penalty of sin in justification— and the presence of sin in future glorification is a present tense salvation from the power of sin in your sanctification. Advent is a season of waiting for those realities, waiting for the king to come. But how are we to wait? Look at verses 14 through 17. Peter says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter does not say to wait and do nothing. He says that because you are waiting on Jesus, to be diligent. And these two ideas are not opposed to each other. Because you are waiting, that is the cause, therefore, be diligent. Active anticipation. As an example, I can look at college students, people in the audience, and say that marriage is a joy and requires a lot of hard work. But if you only hear the first part and then go get married, banking on my word that marriage is a joy, and disregard the fact that it requires a lot of hard work, you will be let down by your marriage. Friends, to believe God's promises 
but ignore his demands, that we actively wait, that we work hard, is it not pretty clear why some of us might feel like our spiritual lives are dry? As we wait, we are to be diligent. But diligent in what? Look at verse 14 again. Diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. To be found like a spotless lamb from the Old Testament. This language would have evoked the imaginations of the original hearers, connecting the sacrificial system and the Holy of Holies and the temple to their everyday lives. This is what it means that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, or that we as a local church are a royal priesthood. Once again, Peter doesn't lower the bar on what it means to be holy and godly. And yet, notice the next phrase. Be diligent to be found by him, spotless, without blemish, and at peace. I can only imagine that some might hear the call to repent and be holy, to call out sin and point people to the holy God who is coming in judgment on the wicked, and they're going to say, you're going to cause people to doubt their salvation. You're going to make people feel judged and uncomfortable in church. Peter says that peace is found in knowing that you are saved, and one of the chief evidences of that reality being that you are diligent in personal holiness. If you overlook Scripture, beloved, if you ignore God's commandments, if you deny the sanctifying power of the gospel, you may have a false peace in this life. But when the king returns, you will be counted with the rebels, cast into outer darkness, and face the eternal wrath of a holy and powerful God who deserves in every way to have you there. No one in this room deserves heaven. But the lost world is happy to feed you a happier message this Christmas. As the prophet says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The world promises peace this season through gifts, family, food, drink, the holiday spirit. Listen, the holiday spirit is not from the Holy Spirit inasmuch as it promises peace, joy, and hope when the wrath and judgment of God are promised to the unrepentant. You're going to walk out of this service today and there's a demonic lie waiting for us in the mass marketing campaign of the world offering peace where there is no peace to be found. I said at the beginning that there are two people we wanted to look at this morning, the scoffer and the saint. But there's a third character and it's easy to miss if you skim through the Bible. And it's the most important character of all without whom how to go from scoffer to saint is impossible and that's the Savior. Look at verse 18. It's a common practice when you read the Bible to skip the opening verse of one of the epistles and skip the last verse as if they're just salutations and farewells. They're packed with truth. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. How do we grow according to Scripture? In John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, 
you can do nothing. If you are here today and you are a Christian, but it has been a while since you saw yourself grow in grace, knowledge, holiness, and godliness, Jesus says to you and to me this morning, abide. I know we have several people in the congregation today who really love plants and gardening. And they know far better than me that for a branch to produce a flower or a fruit or a vegetable, it has to be connected to the main trunk or to the main vine of the plant. Bearing fruit does not keep you connected to the vine. It is staying connected to the vine that is how you bear fruit. And why is that so? Because the branch gets its nutrients that it needs to grow the fruit from the trunk, which is connected to the roots. And our great salvation has its roots in the eternal degrees of God and the love of the Holy Trinity. Jesus, the vine, connects us to that salvation by coming in the flesh, living a holy life, dying the death that we deserve, and being raised for our justification, which connects lifeless branches like you and me to the salvific power of God producing fruit in us. And Jesus says, if there is no fruit, it is not connected to himself. Maybe you are here and you know that you lack love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you would like to see more fruit in your life, run to Christ today. Abide in his word and in prayer. Sit at the feet of Jesus and do not leave. Wrestle with the word of life like Jacob wrestled with God. Do not let go until God blesses you. Nothing could be more important. Abide in him, Christian, and he has promised to abide in you. If you want peace, if you want rest, come to Jesus, the only one who can offer you that this season. Robert Murray Machane, a pastor in the early 1800s, wrote this to a friend. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. We've already looked at the Savior throughout our worship this morning in song and in word, but let's take one more look at Jesus. Peter closes this letter to the early church with these words, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. First, Peter says that Christ is ours. My question for you is, is he yours? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Not based on what home you grew up in or what church you got baptized in or how many times you walked an aisle or raised a hand. Is Jesus yours? You may ask, what does it mean for him to be mine? What does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? And that is the most important question that you can ask. And it's not only for non-Christians. 
I've spoken with many people in our congregation over the last couple of months, and I've heard expressed the belief of people in our congregation. I believe, help my unbelief. And though we truly believe there are struggles in our relationship with Christ, and I feel that burden as well, don't think that the guys who stand up here and preach on Sundays just have magic reading plans in the morning. Doesn't happen. So to myself first, to the lost, to the weak, to the struggling, and even those firm in faith, let us return again and again to Christ. Peter says that Christ is our Lord and Savior. We cannot separate Christ from himself or take one part of his work and leave the other on the table. Is he your Lord? Have you acknowledged his right to rule and reign in all of your life? Have you submitted and bowed the knee to King Jesus? Is he your Savior? Have you repented of your sin and cast yourself on the mercy and grace of Christ? Friends, he is not merely Lord and Savior, but he's worthy of worship. Peter ends his words in praise, and we will as well. Look at verse 18. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Christ is worthy of the glory, meaning all of the glory belongs to him. To him, our Lord and Savior, be the glory both now and forever to the day of eternity. Infinite, forever, all glory be to our God who saves and to our God who has come for our salvation and will come for our vindication. Spending eternity praising the glorious grace of Christ is not a boring eternity because it's all that we were made to do. And God is good enough to give us a glimpse of his glory even now in this age in his son. And right now, we can join the worship of heaven singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The eternal, infinite worship of the triune holy God has already begun. And I long to be there. I long to see a people beyond number gathered around the throne of God singing in fullness of joy. The reality that John writes in Revelation saying, After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is what it means to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what it means to have the Advent season and long for Jesus to return. I know that there are people here this morning and this sermon probably didn't feel like it fit quite where you are. Because this Advent and Christmas season is painful. Because you're spending it without a loved one for the first time. 
I know there are people here who don't know what Christmas will look like because their families are broken and they're falling apart. There are people here who would give up every Christmas gift or tradition to see the prodigal son come home. There are people here who are far from God, limping along. And maybe you are here and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. You feel the weight of your sin and you recognize there's no hope in yourself. And there's no hope out there in the world, no matter how many times they put it in the songs. I'd like to close with a hymn. It's called Come to Jesus. If you haven't heard it, I'd highly encourage you to put it on in the car on your way home. It's written by... Matt Merker, Jordan Coughlin, and the Gettys. Are you weary, heavy laden? Come and lay your burdens down. Jesus calls you. Jesus draws you. Rest in him. He is gentle. He is lowly. He delights to bring us peace. Tender shepherd, mighty savior, rest in him. Are you hopeless? Are you guilty? Caught in shame for all your sin? He pursues you to forgive you. Rest in him. He has paid for every failure. Mercy flows in endless streams. Come and follow. Freedom calls you. Rest in him. And are you waiting in your sorrows? For this broken world to heal. He is coming. Soon returning. Rest in him. We will see him. We will know him. Oh what heights of grace revealed. From his kindness. Every promise then fulfilled. Oh trust in Jesus. He will keep us to the end. His patience is given for our repentance. Will you come to Jesus? Let's pray.